morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thanks for being here today. A um, couple things I want to mention before we get started. Uh, we had a great men's ministry event on Thursday or Friday evening, and uh, David, Sammy, David, I don't want to embarrass you. Can you raise your hand, though, please? Thank you. I am <laughs> so I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm going to embarrass you. Um, but David uh, did an awesome job sharing his testimony um, uh, grew up in Iran in the Muslim faith and, and came to America was, and was saved here. And so anyways, I also, I did want to plug because we just, honestly, I could have done Q&A with you, man, for like another hour. Um, but um, I want to plug his YouTube uh, channel, which is called A Christian Journey. And it's, uh, it, you can watch his testimony on there and also hear about uh, apologetics issues from a Christian worldview and a Christian journey with David Sammy. So thank you, David, for serving our family that way. Um, and then also two prayer requests that I think we just need to take a, set a second and pray for. Uh, Bethany Barnett from our church uh, is in, on a mission trip to Cambodia and she's not feeling well. And so uh, she goes to Northwest, uh, is it University? Northwest University down south and is on a team, uh, missions team for a while with some college students. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for what you're doing here in our fellowship and also all around the world. And thank you for these people that you've called from our fellowship to go uh, to remote places of the planet and to share the gospel there. We pray for Bethany. We lift her up right now in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would be with her in a special way and heal her, Lord. Uh, she's not feeling well, and uh, we just ask for a special healing over her. Um, give her doctors, medicine, or just a miraculous healing, however you want to do that. Please be there and comfort her and also her parents as they're um, I'm sure concerned about her. We also pray for Danny and Dawn, specifically Dawn. We lift her up to you and pray, God, that you would heal her, help them to uh, identify uh, what the, uh, the issue is so that she can get the help that she needs, put the right people in her path, give her the right medicines, or just do a supernatural miracle, Lord. We know you can, and we thank you that you care about them and love them. Please uh, help them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by going over the great commission that Jesus gave to us in Matthew 28, 19, or 18 and through 20. And these were Jesus' parting words before he physically ascended to heaven. Here's what he said, or this is what the verses say. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So in verse 18, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And who gave him this authority? Well, in John, we know that he says God the Father gave him that authority. So the reality that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth means that Jesus is king of the universe, Jesus is the judge of the universe, and Jesus is the savior of the universe, okay? So that Jesus is king of the universe means that he reigns with omnipower, all power, over every spirit and every being and all of God's creation is accountable to him. Okay, Romans 14, 12 says this. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We should take that really seriously and think, 
Wow, okay, if that's the case, then whose good works am I gonna point to when I meet God? Mine or Jesus's, okay? Second, that Jesus is judge of the universe means that he punishes the evil and he blesses the righteous. And third, that Jesus is savior, savior of the universe means that because of his sinless life on earth, because of his substitutionary death on the cross, because of his victorious resurrection from the dead, Jesus alone has the authority, the power, the righteousness, and the ability to rescue people from the eternal punishment they deserve for their sin. And thankfully, he has the will to do that. He, he desires to do that. And so the mission, what we need to see here is that the mission that Jesus gives to us as his followers is grounded in the reality of Jesus' total authority over all peoples of the earth, over all spirits in heaven and in hell, and over all the rest of his creation. And that's why in verse 19, it says, we see this word, Go, therefore. So therefore, it's connecting it to the authority of Jesus. Now, because of Jesus' authority, and because Jesus wills to save people from sin, therefore, go. Go, okay? We Christians have a mission from God, and we are living our lives, and as we are going across, going across the face of this earth, we are to live on mission, and in verse 19, Jesus tells us what the mission is. Go make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Disciples are people who trust in Jesus Christ and who are learning how to joyfully obey him while they rest in the gospel. People who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and who are subsequently learning to obey Jesus while they rest their hearts and souls in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells us to go make more disciples. Of whom? Who are we to make disciples of? Of all nations, okay? And Jesus is not talking merely about all politically recognized nations. Because you guys have seen, I mean, just in the past, you know, 30 years, nations all over, especially in the Middle East and Europe. And I mean, those are changing all the time, right? Jesus is not talking merely about politically recognized nations. The word used here is ethne, and that's the word where we get our word ethnicity from. So he's talking about specific people groups with their own ethnic languages and cultures. And so within every political nation of the world, it might have hundreds of people groups within it, or ethne. And Jesus wants us, his church, to go make disciples of people in all those different people groups, okay? So how are we supposed to do that? What does Jesus say it means to make disciples? Well, it says this. First, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So after a person is born again by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus, one of his or her first steps of obedience to God is to be baptized in God's name. So if you didn't get baptized when you first became a Christian, don't be embarrassed about that, but you should be baptized ASAP if you're a follower of Jesus because Jesus commands it. And in baptism, the disciple of Jesus is making a declaration. He's declaring that he or she is a disciple of Jesus now, and he or she is immersed in water to signify his or her union with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and he or she is claiming God's name upon him or herself. It's a very holy thing. 
celebratory thing too. Okay, so what's the next thing Jesus commands us to do to make disciples? Well, verse 20 says, make disciples by teaching them everything Jesus has commanded us, right? And, and the true disciple of Jesus is going to want to learn the commands of Jesus. Um, wanting to be taught Jesus' commands is evidence that God has truly made you born again, that he's given you a new heart, that, man, I don't, no longer want the world more than I want God. I want God now more than I want the world. And, and Jesus commands us here not merely to teach head knowledge to people, but to teach disciples to do what? To observe or to obey God's commands. Because it doesn't change if we only learn the commands. We need to start to obey his commands with the help of Jesus' Holy Spirit in us. Okay, but in order to obey Jesus' commands, we have to know what he commands us to do. And we learn what he commands us to do by reading his commands in the four gospels and in the rest of the New Testament and through a gospel-centered reading of the Old Testament. So through all of scripture. And so as we begin to learn Jesus' commands and, and seek to obey him, it's crucial, this is unique to following Jesus, it's crucial that we remember we are starting our journey of discipleship from the finish line, okay? Jesus has already perfectly obeyed for us. Jesus has already finished the work of atoning for our sins. Jesus has already declared those of us who have believed in him that we, that we are saved and that we are righteous in God's sight. And that is great news because it changes our whole mentality and approach to following Jesus. And because of this, our efforts to obey Jesus now are not driven by fear that he'll condemn us if we fail. Our efforts to obey him are not an attempt to try to earn God's approval. Instead, we seek to obey God knowing that even when we fail, Christ has already finished the race for us. And this is why we now run the race of faith with internal peace and joy and assurance of victory in Jesus Christ. So starting the race of faith from the finish line, it is totally unique to Christianity. You won't find it in other religions or ideologies. And this is what we mean by gospel-centered discipleship. This is why our church purpose statement says that we want to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship community, service, and multiplication. Because the gospel is not only what we must believe to be saved, the gospel is the axle around which our discipleship revolves. Okay? And Jesus concludes his mission for us with, with this promise. He says, behold, or listen closely now, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's saying that everything we will need to complete this mission, we have because he is with us. Throughout the Bible and all of history, God's presence with his people is always an indicator of his blessing and success. God is with us on our mission to make disciples of Jesus. And the mission will be successfully completed because God is going to do it. <laughs> God is going to complete the mission with us and through his church because that's how he has chosen to do it. 
And Jesus promises he will always be with those of us who believe. Now, on our deathbeds, when we die, when this mission on earth is finished, when Jesus returns to earth, and when he takes us to live with him in eternal glory, he's with us. So I wanted to review the Great Commission this morning because many of the themes of the Great Commission help us to make sense of of the book of Acts and specifically of the next few passages we're going to look at in the book of Acts. Today's sermon text and the next sermon text um, are a little more difficult to interpret and apply because they record some unusual situations that were unique to the first century context in which they took place. And so as we work our way through today's text, I want you to keep your eyes open for the Great Commission. I want you to look for the themes of the authority and sovereignty of Jesus, the, the going of disciples across the face of the earth, um, the making of disciples of all people groups, the baptizing of disciples in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the teaching of disciples in the presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. We're going to see that today and in the next passage. So if you've got your Bible with you, open up with me to Acts 18.18. 18. Please. Paul's just finishing now his roughly two-year stint in the ancient metropolis of Corinth. And he'll now start heading back home to his home church in Antioch. It's going to bring this second mission trip of his to an end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would teach us from your word today and... uh, Give us eyes to see your glory in your word and give us hearts and minds that want to be taught how to obey you. We thank you, Jesus, for uh, being our substitute um, on the cross, for paying the punishment for our sin and for imputing to us the righteousness of you for all who believe God. And we just, we confess we need your help. We need your help now and every day. And we, we need your help as we read this word. So please feed us and help us now. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's look at Acts 18, 18 to 21. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kincreai, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So let's, uh, let's look at the map so we can better understand this. After Paul was found not guilty um, in the, the tribunal court here in Corinth, he stayed many days longer in Corinth. And then after some time, he, he left the believers in Corinth, possibly leaving Silas and Timothy with them. And Paul set sail for Syria, which is over here, okay? And specifically Syrian Antioch. That's a sending church. And uh, Paul felt for whatever reason it was time to return to Antioch to probably update them on all the things God had done in his second mission trip. And also probably to take a little bit of a breather and to, uh, a short breather to be encouraged and strengthened himself. And joining Paul on this trip to Syria are his new ministry partners, Priscilla and Aquila, who he, he just met, right, in Corinth. 
but I guess that would have been a few years earlier that they actually met in Corinth. Well, the, uh, Aquila and Priscilla left their businesses in Corinth. Uh, remember, they were tent makers or leather workers, and they uprooted themselves to go with Paul. And while these three are now sailing back to Syria, several things happen. Uh, first, at this nearby center, uh, city here, real, by, real close to it, of King Crei, um, Paul cut his hair because he was under a vow. So it's very possible Paul took a Nazarite vow in Corinth after the Lord delivered him from that trial in Corinth. And he, this was a voluntary vow that he chose uh, to take and it required him to grow his hair, uh, which he would cut, and then to abstain from certain things. And he did this, this was not, uh, this was not a, a secret thing, this was obviously a very public thing because he would eventually shave his head, right? But he did this in order to publicly thank the Lord and to honor the Lord for his deliverance. And eventually he would conclude the vow by going to the temple uh, down here in Jerusalem, okay? And so um, he would go to Jerusalem, he's gonna offer his cut hair onto the, offering, uh, the altar, and then he would present other offerings. And so basically the plan is, he's over here in Corinth, King Crei, and he's gonna come to Jerusalem on his way to Antioch. <clears throat> the second thing that happens here is on their way to Syria, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila stop in the city of Ephesus, right? They're here, they go to King Crei, sail through, go to Ephesus. And this is a brief stop for Paul. He went into the synagogue in Ephesus, it says, and he reasoned with the Jews about Jesus and the gospel from their scriptures, no doubt, like he has in many churches. And the Ephesian Jews wanted to hear more from Paul, but he felt like he needed to keep moving, and so he told them that if it were the Lord's will for him to return, then he would return someday. Verse 19 says that Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, but he continued on his trip to Syria. So here in this little chunk of scripture, verses 18 to 21, one great commission theme that we see is the sovereign authority and will of Jesus. And specifically, we're reminded here to surrender ourselves to Jesus' sovereign will and authority and care over us. And it reminds us to help us submit ourselves to, to Jesus, and, and Scripture has uh, great helps here to help us do this, like Romans 8, 28, where Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we don't know exactly why Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, whether this was planned or whether this was their choosing or whether this was his choosing, uh, we don't know. What we do know is, 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 what does it say about Priscilla and Aquila? It says that as a married couple living on mission for Jesus, they were willing to uproot themselves and go wherever the Lord told them to go. And they appeared to have the mindset that, Lord, our lives are yours. Because we know they already got uprooted once, right, from Rome? And then they went to Corinth, and now they're going to Ephesus. And they're saying, Lord, we want our plans to be your plans. We want to serve you and others however you want us to serve you and wherever you want us to serve you. And they are submitting themselves to the authority and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible 
that when they left Corinth, they were planning on going with Paul a lot farther. It's real possible that they were planning on going to Jerusalem and up to Syria with him. But what we're going to see real quickly here is that the Lord brought them to Ephesus for a purpose and that God would use them in amazing ways in this city. And isn't life often like this? This is how I was thinking. We make our plans for how we want our lives to go and where we want to live and what we want to accomplish. But God might have different plans for us. And when that happens, it forces us to choose how we're going to move forward, right? Either to be bitter and angry at God for not granting us our plans or to submit to Jesus and his sovereign plans for us. There's really not any other choice, right? We can either become miserable, bitter people because we're not where we want to be. We're not doing what we want to do. We're not with who we want to be with. And and we can live miserable lives wallowing in self-pity and anger toward God. Or we can believe that the good Lord is in control of our lives and that he is our loving shepherd and counselor who guides our steps. And we can trust him that whatever comes to us is from his hand. Famous theologian, the famous theologian, John Lennon, (laughs) said this, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And so we can spend our whole lives planning on the future, or we can spend our whole lives being upset that things aren't how we want them to be, or we can submit our requests to God, because he does answer prayer, And we can trust in his sovereign plan for us and resolve to love God and to love others right now, right here, wherever he has put us, even if it's not where we want to be. That was the mindset, I think, of Priscilla and Aquila, to be used by God to love him and others in Ephesus or wherever else he led them. And what we're soon going to see is that God brought them to Ephesus for at least one specific purpose. But before we talk about that, there's another example here of surrendering to the sovereign will of Jesus. And you think about this, think about this is in the life of Paul here. Throughout all of Paul's travels preaching the gospel, we've seen him be hated and reviled and rejected and persecuted many times in many different cities. But now in Ephesus, the Jews want to hear more about Jesus, but Paul declines. He declines to stay with them. Paul knew that these people need to hear the gospel, they need to believe the gospel, but he also felt strongly that he needed to get back to Syrian Antioch. And so by moving forward in his plans, Paul had to entrust these Ephesian Jews to the sovereign plan of God. And so he tells the Ephesian Jews, I will return to you if God wills. And so Paul plans in his heart to return to Ephesus, but he surrenders his plan to whatever Jesus' plans are for him and for the Ephesians. Jesus is the great shepherd of us, of his church. He will use his church to establish more disciples, to, to feed his disciples, to grow his disciples according to his sovereign timing and plan. Remember, remember this, earlier on the same journey, The Holy Spirit did not allow Paul to come to Ephesus because it wasn't time yet. Remember it said, the Lord forbade me from going to Asia. 
Only God knows why that was. But now, God uses Paul and Priscilla and Aquila to bring the gospel to Ephesus at just the right time. And Paul's going to leave Ephesus, but Priscilla and Aquila are going to begin living life there on mission, and some really cool things are going to happen in Jesus' name. So whatever is happening in your life right now, do not forget that Jesus is in control. He is sovereign over you. He is the king. Um, Nothing happens outside the will and plan of God. He is sovereign over all humanity. He is sovereign over all sickness and disease, over all creation. So what do we do? Well, we present our requests to God because he's a God who cares about us, who is not a God, he's not a God disconnected from us. He is a God who is with us and interacts with us. He's a personal being. Present your request to God, trust him, and ask him while you're waiting, God, use me for your glory here. Use me to love you, to grow me in my own walk through whatever I'm going through, and use me to love the other people around me really well wherever I'm at. Because maybe that's exactly why he has you where you're at. Because he wants you to do that where you're at. After Paul left Ephesus then by ship, verses 22 to 23 say, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, so remember that on his way home to Antioch in in Syria, Paul wants to visit Jerusalem down here. And this is why he landed at Caesarea, which is right here. It's the port city. It's the main port city. If you're going to Jerusalem, you land in Caesarea. And um, verse 22 then says that Paul went up and greeted the church. At first when I read that, I assumed it meant the church in Caesarea. But normally, uh, as you look through the New Testament, that phrase went up, it almost is always talking about Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was on a hill. And so it's going up in elevation. And so Paul went up to Jerusalem. That's most likely what that means. And he greeted the brothers there. And according to some Greek manuscripts, verse 21 has Paul saying that he must go to Jerusalem to keep an upcoming feast. And if that were the case, then Paul's purpose in Jerusalem would have been threefold, to to visit uh, or to complete his vow at the temple, to visit the brothers in Jerusalem, and to celebrate a feast. But then it says from Jerusalem, uh, Paul travels hundreds of miles north now to Antioch. where he finally arrives with his home church in verse 23, basically it gives us very little description of what he did there. It says, after spending some time there. (laughs) And so we can only assume that Paul spent some time there updating the church and taking a little time to strengthen and encourage himself by just being around his encouraging church family. And then after spending some time in Syrian Antioch, Paul, now this is the beginning of his third mission voyage, okay? Verse 23 says that he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what this means is Paul likely traveled back to the disciples he started on his first mission trip, went this way. He was here, and then he probably cuts around here to his hometown of Tarsus, then goes to Derby and Lystra and Iconium, and then back up to Antioch and Pisidian. 
So what that means is, you know, we look at that, we've, you can real quickly read that and skim that. It's like, oh, that's interesting. But put yourself in his shoes. These were towns he was driven out of. These were towns where he was, they tried to kill him with stones and they thought he was dead. But it's amazing that that doesn't keep him away from strengthening the church. According to what we read earlier in Acts about strengthening the church, this is what Paul likely did. He would visit them because there's something amazing just about the presence of a, of a pastor, right? Or a, a, a spiritual leader with you. Or if you're a kid, having a mom or dad with you. Um, he reminded them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Right? It had been a long time since he'd seen him. He's like, you guys are on the right path. Yeah, they, and, and, and he would encourage them to persevere in their faith, specifically in, in the face of much, much persecution. And so that's what he was, he was like, keep running the race. Keep running the race. I know it's hard, but you're on the right path, and Jesus is with us. And while Paul is doing that, while he's visiting these churches up here, thanks, um, up here in, sorry, Let's see if I'm right. Oh, I'm kind of right. While he's visiting these churches, something new, God's doing something new now down in Ephesus. And that's where Acts 18, 24 to 28 comes in. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So here's this new guy, Apollos, and when he comes to Ephesus, he was likely a Christian already. God had gifted Apollos immensely for teaching and preaching. It says he was eloquent with words, He knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. He spoke with great fervor or passion. And he was able to intelligently and powerfully refute those who rejected the gospel. And what's neat to see here is how God at this point was already sovereignly sending Christians from different parts of the world to other different parts of the world to finish the mission. You know, I mean, think about this. Just as Paul and Priscilla and Aquila... Silas and Timothy and Luke, they have all gone across the face of the earth now doing gospel ministry. Those are just the ones we know of that have been listed in scripture. As they're doing that, now Apollos is coming up from Alexandra, uh, North Africa, to preach the gospel in Asia Minor. And, And we see here that Priscilla and Aquila staying behind in Ephesus now was not a mistake. God sovereignly placed them there so that they would cross paths with Apollos and help him. See, Apollos knew all about John the Baptist. He knew that John the Baptist uh, baptized people, repenting of their sin as they looked forward to the Messiah. And 
Apollos also knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord to whom uh, the Baptist pointed. And, and uh, we know this because verse 25 says that Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Okay, now that being said, there were certain gospel facts here that Apollos apparently didn't know yet. He may not have known about Jesus' great commission or uh, the command to be baptized now in the name of the triune God. Uh, Apollos may not have heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost or about God's new command to eat foods that previously had been forbidden by the Jewish law. Uh, We don't know exactly, but we do know this. Aquila and Priscilla gently took Apollos aside and discipled him. And we learn quite a bit here about this discipleship scene in verse 26. As the disciplers, in this case, Aquila and Priscilla were kind and gentle with Apollos. They, they were glad to help him so that he could be more fully used of God. They were not prideful or arrogant about how much they knew and how much he didn't know, right? Rather, they were humble and they were gentle. And now as the one being discipled, Apollos shows himself to have a humble and teachable attitude. Now, no doubt, Apollos was much more educated than them. Alexandria was known for like the best library in the world. It was like the best, most prestigious university town in the ancient world. And he came from this educated town of Alexandria, and Apollos probably knew philosophical terms and concepts and historical figures they'd probably never even heard of. But Apollos humbles himself under their discipleship and learns from them. That's a great lesson for us Christians, that we will never go wrong learning from one another if we resolve to have humble and teachable attitudes. God crossed the paths of these Christians in Ephesus for his greater glory and for each of their joy And it says that after learning the gospel more accurately, Apollos was sent off to the church in Corinth with the full approval and recommendation of the church in Ephesus. And with his new knowledge of the gospel, um, verses 27 to 28 say that Apollos was a great help to the Christians in Corinth, specifically in two ways. First, Apollos greatly helped those who through grace had believed. When I read that, I thought that was an interesting way to say that. I think it's significant that Luke includes the phrase through grace here. Why not just say Apollos helped those who had believed? The author Luke here, who's led by the Holy Spirit, is obviously making a theological point. Verse 27 does not describe Christians as those who through grace had been saved. Instead, he describes Christians as those who through grace had believed. Thus, there's a direct link between God's grace and the act of believing. So God's grace or his unmerited kindness towards undeserving people um, that he gives through the gospel, his grace is not only given by his doing the work of salvation for us, which it is, God's grace is also given to us in enabling us to believe the gospel. Thus God shows believers amazing kindness, amazing grace by choosing us 
calling us, justifying us, sustaining us, and eventually by glorifying us in the future. The whole plan of salvation is entirely by the grace of God. Romans 8.30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are all linked. So when you think about the grace and kindness that God shows you through the gospel, I would encourage you to expand your mind to better grasp the astonishing height and depth and width of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. It's not just the fact that he died for you. Obviously, that's the pinnacle of it. But its aftershocks are shown and its precursors are shown in so many different ways in our lives. The more that we understand all the ways God shows us kindness and grace in our lives, the more we will understand what it means that salvation, my knowing God at all, is entirely by God's grace and his grace alone. And then the second way that Apollos encouraged the Christians in Corinthians, uh, Christians in Corinth was by powerfully refuting the Jews in public. It says, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So there was something about the public nature of this, right? That it, it, it validated the truthfulness of the gospel in a way. Uh, just like when uh, Paul was... Uh, uh, um, when Gallio in Corinth said that Paul was not guilty of anything, that was, that was a big deal because in Roman court, he had been, the verdict was that Paul was not guilty, okay? And so, and that's a big deal here because Apollos is now publicly refuting the Jews and that would have been a great shot in the arm for these Corinthian Christians. Um, now, you don't need to be like Apollos for God to use you to make disciples. It is not necessary for you to be extremely eloquent in speech in order to tell others the gospel of Jesus. It's not necessary for you to be extremely intelligent and educated about the Bible in order to speak the gospel or, or for you to know God closely or for you to do great things for God. It's not necessary for you to be able to speak with unusual fervor or passion in order for the Holy Spirit to speak through you. That being said, it is also a mistake to say that eloquence and education and intelligence and passion are a bad thing. If God has given you those things, then those are a gift to you from God which you should be a great steward of. You should use your eloquence and intelligence and education and passion to point people to Jesus. I am so, so thankful that God is using very eloquent, very intelligent, passionate Christians all around the globe to grow his kingdom. I'm thankful for guys like Dr. Don Carson at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who's my go-to New Testament scholar I trust a lot. He's, I, I can almost guarantee he's written more books than I've ever read, right? And I'm thankful that he's on Team Jesus. <laughs> I'm thankful for scholars like Dr. John Lennox, who's Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge, and he's using his influence to point the finest mathematicians in the world to Jesus Christ. 
We should be so thankful for all the Christian men and women to whom God has given exceptional intelligence. And instead of being jealous of them or condemning their education, we should thank God they're on our team. I watched a very interesting conversation uh, this week between political commentator Ben Shapiro, who's a devout Jew, and William Lane Craig, who is a world-renowned philosopher, Christian apologist, and by all accounts, atheist accounts, what uh, Christian accounts, might be the best debater alive in the world. Christopher Hitchens, these guys said, whatever you do, don't debate this guy because you're going to lose, okay? That's, that was his advice to younger atheists. And as I watched William Lane Craig in this conversation with Ben Shapiro, I thought to myself, I wonder if this is what Apollos was like as he thoughtfully refuted the Jews in Corinth. He's very eloquent, very intelligent. He's passionate about Jesus. And I want to show you a three-minute clip in which Ben Shapiro explains, he brings up a really good argument on why he doesn't believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. And then I want us to see how William Lane Craig responses by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's check this out. From the Jewish perspective, the, this, this narrative has some, some holes in sort of Jewish philosophy. Uh, the, the narrative begins with the idea that Jesus appears in front of the Sanhedrin and then claims to be the Messiah. Well, there's nothing actually criminally in, in any of the tractates that say that if you declare yourself the Messiah, this is actually right. a punishment, a punishable offense even. Right. That, there, there are many Jews, including Bar Kokhba, who have declared themselves messianic figures. Absolutely. The, the real gap here is that in the Gospels, Jesus' vision of himself as the Messiah is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is and is actually outside the scope of how Jews describe the Messiah or really have ever described the Messiah. The Messiah in Judaism has always been a political figure who is destined to do certain things, restoring yeah. the kingdom of Israel, uh, re maintaining control of that kingdom, uh, bringing more Jews back to Israel. All of these things are considered sort of political things that the Messiah does. But the idea of the Messiah as embodiment of God is something that's foreign to Jewish religious <laughs> philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. So even the idea that the Sanhedrin would be questioning him in those terms and would get from that, that what he means is, I am God, which would be a much more punishable offense, presumably that'd be actual uh -huh. blasphemy. That, that's, it's, it's an oddity. I think you're absolutely right in saying that Jesus' understanding of the Messiah was radically different from the prevailing um, cultural understanding of the Messiah among the chief priests and the common people. And he didn't meet their expectations. Indeed, that's what helped to get him crucified. Being the Messiah, you're right, in and of itself isn't a blasphemous claim. But to claim to be the Son of God in a unique sense, and then especially the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel, sitting at the right hand of the power, that is truly blasphemous and is sufficient for his condemnation. Now, the question, I think, that is raised by your interpretation, question, ben, yes. yeah, mm -hmm, your interpretation, mm -hmm. Ben, is this. Why should we believe Jesus' reinterpretation of the Messiah rather than the one that the chief priests and the people held. And I think the answer to that is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is 
Yahweh's public and unequivocal vindication of the man whom the chief priests had rejected as a blasphemer. It is the divine demonstration that these allegedly blasphemous claims are in fact true, that he was who he claimed to be, uh, and that therefore I follow Jesus in his conception of what it means to be the Messiah. I watched <laughs> I watch these guys and I'm just it just amazes me they're not using notes. It's like you could be reading this from some really deep theo, you know, philosophy book and this is just how these guys talk. Um, and I thank God for people like William Lane Craig and guys like Apollos. And you know, think about what was going through Paul's mind. It could have been very easily for the apostle Paul to be intimidated by Apollos. And I love the way, though, that Paul instead wraps his arms around Apollos and accepts him as a partner in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 8, Paul humbly writes this about Apollos. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So rather than being intimidated by Apollos, Paul celebrated how God was using Apollos to spread the gospel in a new way and in a new place. And um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but our little town of Stanwood is changing. New businesses are starting, new houses are being built, lots of new people are moving into our community, and even though change is often hard for everybody, I want to encourage us at Cedar Home to be disciples of Jesus who look at our town and our neighborhoods and our church through the lens of the Great Commission. We can either be bitter about the changes we see in our town and we can resent all the people who are moving here, or we can trust Jesus and believe that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to him, and that he is actually bringing to us current and future disciples of Jesus. We got neighbors of all ages moving in right around us who need to hear and ex about and experience the love of Jesus Christ through the people of Cedar Home Baptist Church. I pray that you would take Paul's words seriously, that you, if you are a believer, are an ambassador of another kingdom. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are Christ's hands and feet to these neighbors. Do not be flipping about that or throw that aside. That is a privilege and a blessing and something to be excited about. That means God has purpose and a plan for you as you serve with him on mission to, to love and reach our community. And I pray that when new people come to our church and become Christians, if God wills that, and becomes members of our church family, that we wouldn't be resentful and think, oh boy, our church has really changed. This church sure isn't how it used to be. Instead, I hope we'll say with the Apostle Paul, praise God for the new ways that God is changing our church in order to use us to share the gospel and love of Jesus with more people. 
Praise God that our church isn't how it used to be because that means God is doing a new thing among us. Praise God that new people want to get involved in our church and, and be in community groups and serve and teach. That means that Jesus is complete, completing the Great Commission right before our eyes. So instead of being turf protectors or bitter protectors of man-made traditions, let's welcome people with the open arms of Jesus and say, Jesus Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus, if you want me to be part of making disciples at Cedar Home and in Stanwood and around the world, then use me, please, as your humble servant, however you want. Use me to encourage and love and welcome Christians and non-Christians into my church and into my home and into my life. Help me not to be jealous of Christians who are gifted differently than me but to remember that I'm unique too, and we need each other's gifts to make more disciples together. Lord, please give me a willing and gentle spirit like Aquila and Priscilla. Lord, give me a humble and teachable spirit like Apollos. And Lord, please give me a welcoming and encouraging spirit like Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage today, God, and just your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you um, for the simplicity of the gospel and that even children can understand it um, and that it is about your, who you are and what you've done for us. And we also thank you, God, that um, when we believe you give us gifts to use to serve your kingdom and to, to, to reach the lost. And so I pray that you would help us remember we're on mission and that you have sovereignly put us where we're at right now for this season of our life. And help us just not to be so focused on what is wrong with our lives or where else we would like to be that we don't look around and say, God, who are these people right around me that need, need you? We love you, Jesus, and uh, please let this word soak in our hearts this week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.